Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the summit between Canadian premiers ended with them saying that national unity is strong, but there are some exceptions to it. Hamilton's treatment plant is dumping partially treated sewage into Hamilton Harbor. And a new report says the conservative leader Andrew Scheer's climate plan would actually cost more and increase emissions, much more than the liberal policy. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Speaking of provincial leaders, uh, they just finished their big summit that was held in Saskatchewan just uh, for a couple of days anyway. Canadian premiers are saying that national unity is strong, kind of, sort of. Uh, but they do have some bones to pick with the federal government. Joining us to uh, give us an analysis on what happened and what they really mean is uh, good friend Richard Brennan, of course, retired journalist uh, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years and covered more than a few of these kinds of conferences, I guess. Badger, how are you doing today? Good to have you on. Good, Bill. How's it going? Excellent, excellent. Uh, read between the lines here. When they say, hey, national unity is just fine, everything's going along just swimmingly here, uh, but I'm hearing comments from Premier Kenny and Premier Mo and a few others that uh, tell us that uh, there's there's a, some rumblings of discontent among these premiers. Well, imagine that provinces have got a bone to pick with the federal government. Boy, there's a new one. Never heard that before. Never heard that before. I mean, this is this is an annual great fest, and you know, I mean, sometimes they'll they'll you know grab hands and sing kumbaya, but not often. It's usually just a uh, you know a time for them to say what the federal government should do for them. And that's what it is. Well, I mean, you know, they, they put a communique out, of course, and it's interesting to see some of the stuff. Uh, and, and stop you if you've heard this before. They want more money for health care, uh, and they want uh, more money for, well, I forget what, oh, infrastructure. Uh, but at the same time, they want the federal government to lay off and let them do whatever they want within their own provinces. Yeah, that's about status quo. This is what, this is something they've, they constantly, you know, ask for they they want money from the federal government, but they want to be independent from the federal, you know, any federal laws. And you and you saw that, you know, in this latest gathering is that, you know, the provinces want to be funded, but they don't want to be told what to do. And this is something that happens every year, quite frankly. And I mean, you, you, we have we have uh, various conservative. Premiers saying, you know, uh, we don't like the federal government, and they, you know they're making that you know, they almost can't they detest Trudeau. And so I don't know how you can square you know, square the circle here and say that you know things are just hunky dory. Not you know Canada is one big happy family. Yet we we had recently you know Jason Kenney was you know calling basically calling for to for. Alberta pull out of uh, Confederation. So I, I don't know. I don't get it. Well, again, this is not the first time we've heard this sort of thing. I mean, you know, when 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 Pierre Trudeau was running the country, you know, there, there was some pretty uh, mean spirited feelings between Alberta and and Ottawa at that time because of the National Energy Program that he put forth. Uh, so that's and that's never really gone away, has it? No, that is one wound that will never ever heal. I mean, you go out. These and I've covered, like you said earlier, I've covered lots of these, and I've covered one in Alberta, and they still talk about that as if it was yesterday. That you know, and what uh, and what Pierre Elliott Trudeau did to them, and how it put you know uh, it put Alberta you know behind the eight ball for quite a while. And and that feeling is is, is festering now. As a matter of fact, two of the uh, premiers that seem to have the most to complain about were Alberta and Saskatchewan, Premier Moe and Premier Kenny. And it really all comes down to energy, doesn't it? And, and getting oil out of the ground or potash in the Saskatchewan case, I suppose, uh, and getting it to market. And they don't think they're getting much cooperation from anybody else. Well, the federal government is doing, apparently starting to actually ramp up and doing things that, you know, that, that should allow that the Trans-Canada Pipeline to be built. And certainly, most, I think most Canadians, and, and certainly the uh, surveys have, have proven this out, is that they believe that there should be a Trans-Canada Pipeline and that Alberta has every right to complain that they're not getting their oil out. And I mean, that's a, it's a proven fact that most people do believe that. So they they do have something to complain. I, I'm not so sure about the potash. I'm not I'm not sure how that. It's maybe just that the market has dried up a bit. But they have some complaints, and and concluding, you know, that there's 
shouldn't be interprovincial barriers to trade. And there is, even today, was just, like, when I lived in, when I covered the Hill, I used to go over to Costco and get beer, or in the, on, in the Quebec side. Mm-hmm. And that's illegal. You I cannot try. You can't go across the river. You can't go across the river to Hull and buy beer. I cannot. I cannot go there and legally bring it back, which I, you know, I'll, you go to Costco, you know, like Hall or Gatineau, I guess, and it's practically a, a sea of white Ontario, <laughs> you know, licenses. And they could, so you get beer and you bring it back because it's a lot cheaper. However, what we were doing was illegal and still is illegal. But they addressed that. You know, they said yesterday that they're going to do what they can to try to tear down those barriers and have more free trade within the country. But come on, Richard, how many years have they been saying that? Every per- I don't care who the premier is. I don't care what kind of conference it is. They always say they're going to do this. And then one of them says, yeah, okay, but you know what? you got to give me an exception for this. Well, if you're going to do that, you better give me an exception for this. And we're right back where we started from. Well, let's put it this way. I had dark hair and longer hair when that happened. <laughs> it's been going on forever and ever, amen. If you cover these things, you can expect the same things to be covered over and over and over again. It's a, it's a great opportunity for a reporter to get to know, you know the staff of some of the premiers and, uh, and some of the premiers themselves you know, in a kind of one-on-one situation, which, which, which is good. I don't know of anything I can think of that's ever came out that had any stop to it. Well, and for them to suggest, uh, to a certain extent anyway, that there's some some unanimity and these guys all respect each other. I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, you know, Kenny and Horgan have been at each other's throats ever since Kenny got elected uh, because Horgan's still against uh, the pipeline that is going to be built. Uh, he's, I don't know if they're going to fight that in court again. Uh, the other guys are concerned about the province of Quebec, of course. And uh, Legault's the, the, the one that's basically saying, you're not putting a pipeline through my province. And there's no wonder Kenny's ticked off at him as a result of this. Uh, and I guess they're looking to Ottawa to say, well, you have to impose this on them because we need to get that over to the East Coast. Uh, they've been saying that for about 30 years now, too, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. Subsequent governments, whether it's conservative or liberal, just haven't seemed to be able to get that done. So I'm not so sure why they're thinking it's going to happen this time. Well, I, 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 I got to say, I got a, a bit of a kick out of uh, uh, Premier Ford saying that it was uh, referring to the conservative parties being blue from coast to coast to coast. Well, you know, uh, I don't think there's a conservative government in BC, and I don't think there's a conservative government in Newfoundland or Newfoundland. So, you, you, <clears throat> I think some of the people there, including you know, the Premier Ford, have got gripes, but they don't really know what you know to prioritize and say. Here's what you go in there with one thing, and you say, "Look, at this is the issue that we have to get dealt with by the federal government." And it never seems to—they never seem to coalesce around one thing that they could actually take to the table and say, "This is our ask. This is what we need, and this is what we need for all of us, just not." Alberta or, or Manitoba. And, and that's where I think they fall down. Is they don't, they're not speaking with one voice. They have done that in the past, but usually it's been at the direction of the federal government. I mean, you know, there could be a, a first minister's conference that the prime minister would actually have. I don't think Stephen Harper never did that. And I think Trudeau's no, done he never one. Held one. Yeah, I think yeah, Trudeau's done one. But, yeah, and, and they usually don't go anywhere because invariably, like you say, it turns into a gripe session. But if they say, hey, son, we're going to get together and we're going to talk about health care, uh, you yeah. know you, you know what the ask is going to be and you know what the answer is going to be from the, the, the feds. Uh, you know, long gone are the days in 1964 when the feds said, we'll pay 50% of the health care costs. They're not going to do that anymore. That's just not going to happen. Well, and some people wonder why it's not going to happen because I mean the federal government they they have I always I always get a charge of the fact that they talk about that money, our money, your my money and everybody else's out there like it's theirs. And why isn't why isn't the federal government sending more money down the down the pike to to the various provinces? I mean that's a that's a good question. They're saying, well, we, we we have lots of things to, you know, spend money on, too, so we really can't afford it. Well, 
you know, they, they have national defense and, uh, you know, national health care, but it's all, it's all administered at the provincial level. So I mean, the provinces do have some beefs. There's no question about it. But it would be, like I, to repeat myself, it would be great if they spoke with one voice. On, on, on an issue every year, it would be a different one. Because, I mean, there's mixed messages. Obviously, we talked about the health care aspect of this. Yeah, they want more money. They want more money in transfer payments. But I, I got this, just from the, what we've read, uh, the sense I got here is that the main focus here seemed to be about energy, uh, the battle between Alberta and, and B.C., which is ongoing. Uh, Kenny's uh, upset with Quebec because they, they don't want a pipeline, and he, he's accusing the uh, federal government of giving Legault basically a, a veto card in situations like this. And, and maybe there's some credibility to that argument at the same time. But, but Kenny's also saying, that, again, you talked about the idea that he's saying about 60% of Albertans in this uh, surveys that they've done say they, they're favoring actually splitting off from Canada. Uh, but basic, uh, you know, when you've got a chip on your shoulder and you're basically saying, look, my job now as Premier is to get this guy out of office in Ottawa, uh, there's always going to be an antagonistic attitude there. I mean, there's, it takes two to tangle. And boy, these guys are more than willing to tangle with the federal government. Well, they're not reading the tea leaves. I'll tell you, if they take, you know, they've got they've got the attitude that you know, the conservative premiers have band together and say, you know, we want Trudeau and his gang out of there. <clears throat> well, like I say, they're not reading the tea leaves because I'll tell you, there's every good chance he's going to get reelected. The NDP vote has collapsed, and there is a, a bit of a rift in the conservative party themselves. <clears throat> so they, they they're not playing the long game, as far as I'm concerned. Well, if they want something, I mean, I, I have no problem with them to, with one voice asking for this, but why not sit down and say, look, at Mr. Prime Minister, we want to have a discussion about energy and about pipelines. Uh, you know, if you if they're dead set uh, against uh, pipelines, let's hear that. But if they're going to be cooperative and say, let's try to find a way. Uh, we already know where Quebec's stand is on this, um, and, you know, they, they, they do essentially have a veto power. Why is that? I mean, I, I don't understand anything constitutionally that suggests that they can arbitrarily just say, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, you know, can the federal government stand up to Quebec? The, like, I guess the shorter answer is not before the election they won't. Oh, yeah, are you, are you kidding? Because that's where, that's where he's going to win, win the election. So, uh, yeah, he's not about it. It's frustrating for the provinces to deal with the federal government, particularly the Trudeau government, because it's like trying to nail jelly against the wall. It, to get to get them to take a position on anything is, is you know, it's, it's almost impossible. Well, especially, let's just say, you know, when you look at the track record here, like, you know, Kenny's saying he's not getting much cooperation from Ottawa. Well, you're suing the federal government right now about the carbon pricing. So is Ontario. You know, Saskatchewan. Uh, the, you know, when you have an antagonistic and an and a, a attitude like this where you're simply saying, look, at, you know, we just dead set against just about everything you're doing. Uh, by the way, we want more from you. You know what the answer is going to be right off the bat. Yeah, well, it, but it's always been thus. Regardless of who is in power, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's been, the, you know, the provinces, uh, I, I, you know, against the federal government. And it's, and it's, it's easy to, for provincial premiers to rail against the federal government because how, what, how can you go wrong? You know, in particular with Trudeau, there's a lot of people, you know, who dislike Trudeau. So why, why not, why not run? Why not, why not rail against the, it's, it's a no lose as far as they're concerned. But, as I said, they're not looking down the road and saying, well, hold on a second. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't be going coming as hard, hard against the federal government because there's every good chance that they're going to still be there, you know, come the fall. Well, we've seen examples in the past, even in the days when, when you were covering Parliament Hill. Uh, you know, David Peterson was a premier here in Ontario. He was a liberal. Uh, Brian Mulroney was the conservative prime minister. I, I know they hit a lot of the stuff was was uh, very, very difficult, uh, the negotiations, because they were talking about the Constitution, bringing the Constitution home, and a lot of other things. But it was a pretty tense time right across the country. But those guys worked together to try to find some sort of a deal. I don't see that anybody around that table in the premier's conference this year has any desire to work collaboratively with the federal government. And, and the trouble thing is, Ontario always had a reputation, or mostly had a reputation for being the deal maker, you know, the conciliator. When they went to these meetings, I mean, Bill Davis would they, was, they always looked to uh, Bill Davis, the other premiers, to see, well, 
what's the common ground? Where, what can we do that will appeal to everybody? What, what gains can we make? You know, the Constitution or whatever it was. But that's gone now. It's just, it yeah. just turns in, it's just turned into a gripe fest. There's no, there's no real effort, as far as I can see, to gain ground here. Listen, we're just about out of time. Uh, before I let you go, though, uh, I got a note from you the other day. There's a, an event coming up in the first week of August, I think, that you wanted to plug. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you very much, Phil. Uh, on August 4th, there's an open house at the uh, Military Museum. It's a Canadian Military Heritage Museum in Brantford. And I, I'm involved in a bit with an old friend of mine from high school, Bob Lyon. He, he heads it up, and it's a great little military museum. And I really urge anybody that's got that day available and open to them to go to this open house on, on August 4th. It's, it's just a, a terrific place, and uh, the uh, kids will have a great time. And, and, the, and their, you know, the adults, their parents, will certainly enjoy it as well. It, it's, it's a step back into history and, you know, history that we should all know and, uh, and, and keep close to our hearts. Well, another great story, too. I know we got to run here, but uh, I know they have a Women in Wartime uh, exhibit at the uh, museum right now, too, it's, uh, which is worth it. So some great stories there that uh, that need to be told. Oh, some terrific stories. Uh, it's on Greenwich Street in Brantford. Uh, if you want to just Google that and get your, your map up there and your, your GPS and you'll be raw and going. And free admission, too. Yep. Uh, Badger, thanks yep. so much for this. Uh, have a great okay, weekend. So. We'll talk again soon. You take it easy. Thanks. You too. Richard Brennan, of course, a retired journalist, uh, with his insights into uh, how the premiers acted and uh, what's going to happen as a result of all that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The picture in your mind. Uh, just this, this is what we've been hearing in the news all morning here on CHML. 840 Olympic-sized swimming pools full of watery sewage. Not a very pretty picture. Uh, that's apparently what's been dumped into Hamilton Harbor over the last little while. It's a rather depressing situation here, but the treatment plant, I guess, is, is under construction. There's a lot of other things that are happening, and, uh, well, we seem to be going in the wrong direction when it comes to water quality. Uh, Chris McLaughlin, of course, is with the Bay Area Restoration Council, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Morning, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Oh, well, I'm glad you could jump in here and talk to us about this, because, I mean, just that mental picture of all this stuff going into the water uh, is, is, well, as I mentioned just a second ago, we seem to be going in the wrong direction. This is this is rather troubling. Uh, not so much in the wrong direction as taking a slight step back to make a giant leap forward. I like that analogy. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, pr- the problem is trying to reconstruct a wastewater treatment plant well people continue to flush the toilet continuously without stopping obviously we don't stop because the plant's under reconstruction we don't stop when it's raining outside which would be a really great idea um if we could get everybody on board with that so the the what's happening down at woodward avenue is an upgrade to the level of treatment several several years ago the city made a call in terms of where to spend all of this money. Would we increase the, the volume of treatment or would we increase the quality of treatment? And we went with the latter, the quality of treatment. So what that means is that not only do we have secondary treatment that's treating the bacteria, we'll have by 2021 or 22, uh, we'll have what's called tertiary treatment, which is uh, the ability to fine-tune what's actually coming out of the plant at the end. So the bacteria is being treated so we can much more, uh, much better control phosphorus, and that's the thing that's driving the algae that's making the news today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the green-blue algae that we were talking about earlier this week, and uh, this is, uh, from my understanding, is one of the earliest times it's actually showed up. It's not uncommon to see this later in the summer, but so early. Is, is it because of all the rainfall? Uh, the rain doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, help, that's for sure, um, especially when you get the added phosphorus in the, in the bay from the, from the bypasses uh, the sewage by sewer bypasses um the uh, the other thing is that it's been smoking hot so far in july and yeah. it doesn't look like it's going to let up 28 30 degrees to the end of july and it's uh it really creates those uh the right conditions to cook a lot of algae so 
I got, I got to tell you, and I know you were aware of this, Chris, but uh, uh, when first-term city councilors, and I can remember when I got elected back in the late 1990s, one of the, the highlights, we, we all got in there, seven or eight of us, and we all did the tour of the, the water treatment plant down on Woodward Avenue. Uh, most people don't even know that it's there. Well, they know it's there, but they don't know what happens in there. And it was a day-long tour, and I, it's fascinating, the technology. And Now, that was 19 years ago, so obviously the technology's improved since then. And we've improved immensely from the old, old days when they used to just dump the stuff right into the bay without much treatment at all. Uh, so we, we have come a long way, but it's, it's, it's a little frustrating when you see, as you mentioned, one step back here, especially because it seems as if all the natural forces are working against us right now. Um, certainly, uh, you see uh, comments in the news today from uh, the head of uh, Hamilton Water regarding climate change, and the concern there is that uh, is the increasing amount of uncertainty around how much volume they're going to face in the future. Civil engineers that build the pipes that carry the sewage down to Woodward Avenue, they like as much certainty as possible, as does, I should add, all of the biology that goes on down there, as you say. It's a complex place. It's an enormous place. People don't really have a great uh, appreciation for all of the things that go on there to treat what we flush down the sewer, uh, down the toilet, before it goes out into the, into the rivers and into the bay. So the, the plants and the engineers that run it, they like certainty. And what climate change is predicted to do is increase the intensity of the storms that we receive, you know, on, on um, our house on Saturday, I couldn't believe it, Saturday evening, we were getting the fourth torrential downpour of the day. Like, the volume of water going through there, is, is through the system, is just amazing. I guess I, well, I have the opportunity, I encourage people, you know, during these events to go out and just look at the volume of water going down the closest catch basin, the, the storm drain on the, next to the curb nearest to their house. Look at the volume of water, I mean, Count how many of these drains are across down your street, through your neighborhood, and across the city. Like, we're talking an enormous amount of, of, of water. And I guess the one thing to point out about this particular issue, about the step back in terms of uh, uh, the amount of sewage that's going to be treated or not be able to be treated during these events, and that, let's just clarify, all of that storm event received primary treatment, all of it. And then what's happening is the secondary treatment, that is the biological treatment of the of the bacteria, it's being reduced by about 15% for the next year and a half, and for another year and a half after that by about 10%. Um, and that's in order to replace a lot of the, uh, um, the infrastructure down at Woodward Avenue. And so you will see some of that some of that flow in heavy rain events going out. Uh, and being bypassed uh, around the secondary treatment. But the, rema- the reminder is for people that that's largely stormwater. There's the same amount of sewage that we w- would receive on a dry day, um, so it's largely uh, uh, stormwater. So it's highly diluted. It doesn't make it any less unpleasant to think about and imagine, um, particularly if you were inclined in the 24 to 48 hours after a storm to go, say, in a canoe up uh, into Red Hill, Mm-hmm. Um, you're certainly going to your your nose is going to notice the difference, um, and it's uh, of course it's disheartening that this is this is a necessary uh, step in the process. It's disheartening that we've got the algae showing up so early in the year. But I would take the opportunity also to just point people to a 27, uh, 2017 report card where we gathered together a bunch of scientific experts around water quality and uh, sewage treatment, uh, fish and fish habitat, for example, all of them had a consensus view that in the years moving forward, after Woodward Avenue is totally reconstructed, we will see that we will start to reap the benefits of that massive investment. And in fact, for the first time in 150 years, sewage in Hamilton, and the treatment of sewage, I should say, will actually be improving water quality in the harbor because the amount of phosphorus in particular will be so much lower uh, than it is in the ambient environment. Uh, well, we've made some leaps and bounds already, though, haven't we? I understand that, you know, this is a bit of a, an anomaly, and it's it's unfortunate that it's happening this year. But what was it, eight or ten years ago, I guess, Chris? I mean, when that algae buildup happened, and it, it does tend to happen, I guess, every summer, when the, you know, obviously when they heats up. Remember, we even had a musty smell to our drinking water back in, in you know, eight, had 10, 15 years ago, I guess it was. And, and obviously they've solved that problem because it hasn't happened since. Well, Hamiltonians know from traveling all over uh, Ontario 
And we have some of the best municipal water anywhere. Yep. In terms of taste and, 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 uh, and smell and all of that. You'll know from your days on council where you move from one big fat binder about an issue to another completely different issue and a big fat binder. How quickly you have to, you know, we tend to move as a society from one issue to another. And we so often uh, fail to stop and realize, recognize, celebrate how much progress we've made. And this is really an opportunity to salute the city of Hamilton for a, a really massive and, and wise investment in, uh, in our future health of our community and the Bay in particular. Um, what's going, what the city and the other partners have, uh, like the federal government and the provincial government, for example, have invested in Woodward Avenue, the hundreds of millions of dollars, will be benefits for generations to come. So that's certainly to be celebrated. The, um, I don't know what else, uh, where else to go with that bill, but well, it's, it's just to show that we're making some progress here. I guess one of the questions that comes out of this, yeah. though, is, as we see uh, some of the data, and you just, I think, gave us a great explanation, Chris, as to what's happening and why. Uh, there is some stuff that when we say untreated sewage, it's, it's, you say it is partially treated. This, it's not really untreated stuff because it does go through the first phase. But it, there are still some problems with the water when it goes in there, when the, the, that bypass happens. How severe is the damage that, that's caused to water quality in the bay when that happens? Well, it's highly diluted, so it's not, you know, if we think about the pictures coming out of Shadok Creek last year, and your listeners might remember that there was a, a failure of, of some infrastructure, um, sewer infrastructure last year that released um, pretty much what you flush down the toilet out into Shadok Creek. That's mm-hmm. the creek that runs along the 403 um, from the Spectator Building and comes out into Coots Paradise and then through out into the West Harbor. Right. Um, it was suspected last year, although it couldn't be entirely proven, but it was highly suspected by our water quality scientists at CCIW that uh, that there was a pretty good correlation between the amount of, of, of sewage and, and the phosphorus in that sewage coming out uh, of Shadow Creek and then the, the algae bloom that we got last year, which, you know, people at, with boats on the harbor for the last 40 years are all saying, I've never seen it this bad. I, to- I would totally believe that. Um, so there's a pretty strong correlation. What you're going to see bypassing the secondary treatment at Woodward this year, uh, in the next couple of years during this reconstruction, is nothing nothing like what turned Stoke Creek into a, effectively a barnyard last year um, for a few months. So what you're going to see is is uh, it's highly diluted. That's not to say that it, you know, we're okay with this, but sometimes. You know, I, I, I equate it to a bit like having the, the lead pipes replaced to your old to your old house, mm-hmm. um, where they've, you know, they got to shut the water off. That's an inconvenience. They're going to dig the whole place up. It's going to be a bit of a mess. But then they put it back together, and in the long run, you've got strong, a stronger and safer supply of water. And that's a, that's a, a household version of what we're looking at as, at a municipal level. Because we were on the brink uh, some years ago when we weren't doing this very well, of course, and uh, you know we were having stories about the the possible demise of Coots Paradise and 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 a fish life and and plant life in in the ecosystems all the way around there. We've we we started it's building up again. We just we I guess we don't want to see a huge backward step right now because we saw how ugly it could have gotten. It's a little frightening to think, to be honest, uh, to think of where uh, climate change might take us in terms of changes to the environment. Um, Everything is susceptible to changes in temperature, for example, changes in volume of water, um, and we're seeing that right now for the second time in three years. The phenomenal and record levels, uh, lake lake uh, levels, and of course that pushes water back into the bay and back up into Coots Paradise, and uh, and so you know we're concerned about where we're going in the future. But the least we can do is. Uh, is the upgrades that we're doing right now to deal with the sewer, the sewer issue, which between Hamilton and, and Halton, Burlington, about half of the water that's received into the bay is through one of those treatment plants, either Halton's or Woodward or the city's other plant up in Dundas. The other half is coming off the watershed. And that was an issue that was raised uh, earlier this week at City Council in Hamilton around how to better deal with stormwater. In the past, everyone knows that the, how badly the bay was abused. If you refer to the to the, the bad old days and the history of, of uh, industrial and municipal waste that would have flowed pretty much entirely untreated into the bay for, for decades, 
Um, you know, we, we, we're nowhere close. We're not, we're not even into the ballpark of being in those kinds of conditions that, that brought us that, um, that reputation in the first place. But the perceptions are so slow to change, much slower than the reality, and it feels like sometimes it's taken forever to get this far. I'd really encourage people to, uh, to try and remember how much progress has been made and, uh, and to celebrate that and the fact that we're continuing to do, to do what we can. You know, if, you, if your car breaks down and you replace, say, the, the spark plug, if that's the issue, you drive away and it works fine. The problem is ecosystems like bodies of water that we're trying to restore in Hamilton Harbor, they don't work that way. They have an uncertainty and they can create surprises that uh, that uh, that we don't normally encounter and, and are difficult to deal with, and they certainly don't fit into 10-second sound bites. So I really appreciate the time to try to explain a bit how the, these pieces all fit together in a system. And, uh, and not to despair that uh, our 2017 report card did bring together this consensus view that there would be a, the forecast was up, that we would see improvements in the environment in the years to come, with the changes that we've been making, and that uh, hopefully the biology, you know, the, the fish and the other critters and the plants, and uh, they all uh, they all agree that we've done that we've done enough to make these improvements. I got about a minute and a half left here. The, the city has a role to play here too, not just obviously with the, the financing of the, of the facility on Woodward. But it's a planning issue, too, and we, we talked about this extensively on the program. Uh, you, you can't just pave over everything and expect everything is going to be the same as it was before. Uh, we need more green space. Uh, we need, uh, well, fruits up in Ancaster, the, the stormwater retention ponds are right up there by uh, the Meadowlands. You know, right by, they, they, It's a soccer field, but it's really it's to cover excessive rainfall. Uh, we yeah. need to do more of that to, to take some of the pressure off the system. Yeah, and you know, like I told Council on Monday, they have a staff at Hamilton Water that is clever and primed with the right attitude to start addressing some of these issues. Some of the ways that you're absolutely right, that, that we have to redevelop the landscape, that we have changed how water interacts with the land so dramatically by paving pretty much everything and turning a lot of the rest of it into farm fields and construction sites. This, these are the places where unlike in the past where we might have pointed to specific pipes, that that's our problem right there. Those sewers or those industrial outfalls right there, those are our problems. We've, we've remediated so many of those sources um, to date to make these improvements. We really need to look back into the, the landscape to our, our, our subdivisions, our streets, uh, our farm fields and agricultural lands. Um, the construction sites that generate so much uh, uh, material that ends up in, in surface water. We really need to start looking in these places, and that's what the discussion um, will, will, will come with uh, that, that City Council authorized on Monday that staff bring back to Hamilton Council a, a report on all of the ways that we might implement some of these changes in the way that we deal with stormwater. So you're absolutely right. The city has a huge leadership role to play in this issue. And it's going to take, look at some some backbone, because they're going to have to make some difficult decisions and maybe some unpopular decisions. I know everybody always complains, for instance, when council announces, hey, the water rates are going up, but it's all part of the, the, the bigger picture here. I mean, that's where that money's going. I mean, you know, the, the extra money that we paid this year over last year for water rates is helping to do the reconstruction on the water treatment plant. Absolutely. It's all dedicated money, and people could look to specific improvements that are being made with the money that's being collected. And the, the, the issue around a stormwater rate, for example, um, because stormwater, dealing with stormwater right now and the infrastructure that's needed, um, it's really playing second cousin to the water wastewater, and, and it, it can easily get forgotten as all of this money is being spent on these other projects. We really need a dedicated, sustained and fair way of dealing with stormwater that will get us some of the improvements upstream so that we can see some of the changes in the landscape upstream so we can see the improvements in water quality downstream. So we're talking about things like uh, things that people can do on their own properties, for example, like disconnecting downspouts and running them out into rain gardens in your yard, for example, keeping as much of the rainwater that falls on your property, keep it there on your property. 
Uh, so many other things, too, and I know that uh, actually uh, there's some web pages, a number of different things you can Google to get some information like that. Uh, one mm. small backward step for one leap forward. i got to remember that one, Chris. Uh, <laughs> listen, great having you on the program, and thanks so much for the explanation. I think you've assuaged some of our concerns here, but uh, uh, more to come, sure, to be sure, I guess, in the weeks ahead. Have a great weekend. That's great. Thanks for the opportunity, and you too, Bill. You too. Chris McLaughlin, of course, head of the uh, Bay Area Restoration Council. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we uh, move towards the election uh, this coming October, a number of public opinion polls suggest that uh, the environment and environmental policies are going to be very, very important to Canadian voters, which is why it's so important that we do some analysis and find out just what they stand for and where they stand. And uh, we already know, of course, about the, uh, the government's uh, policy about carbon pricing and uh, the carbon taxes, as uh, many people call it. We know about the f- legal arguments that are going on with that right now. But a little while back, Andrew Scheer presented the conservative uh, approach uh, for uh, their plan. And, uh, well, it's uh, undergone some analysis by a group that has uh, actually suggested that uh, when they crunch the numbers, uh, the conservative leader's plan actually would cost more than the liberal plan and increase emissions more. Uh, it deserves some explanation. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to bring my Michael Bernstein into the uh, conversation. Michael is with Canadians for Clean Prosperity, who were uh, involved in the analysis. Michael, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the who and why of, of, of maybe, first of all, tell us the group Canadians for Clean Prosperity. Uh, some people are dismissive and say, oh, you guys are just a bunch of left-wing tree huggers and you're going to be against any kind of policy like this. Uh-huh. Uh, right. I've, I've looked at the webpage. Uh, there's a, a combination, and you guys have no political affiliation at all, but there's actually a combination of different people of different political stripes, uh, but they seem to leave that at the door when they do these policy analyses. Yeah, so we're, we're an independent group. We're not associated with any political party. We, in fact, don't even think this issue should be political, uh, and we've absolutely had people from all across the political spectrum as part of our team. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, this report is critical of the Conservative Party, but our previous executive director, who preceded me, was actually a former chief policy advisor to Stephen Harper. Mm-hmm. So um, really, we're a group of concerned people who want to see our country uh, take greater action against climate change. And we know how to do that. We actually have solutions, solutions that are fair and that are low cost. And the chief one is a, is a carbon tax. So unfortunately, that policy, the carbon tax, uh, has gotten caught up in politics. But we're saying, look, this isn't political. This is a critical issue facing Canadians. And we'd just like to see all the political parties take more action. Well, and there's an interesting, I know it's going to sound like splitting hairs to some people, but there's an interesting distinction to be made here. Uh, because I remember talking uh, with the previous uh, CEO, of course, uh, when the other policy and the analysis came out about, about the liberal carbon tax plan. Uh, you, you're not endorsing the liberal plan. What you're saying is carbon taxing is more effective than what the, uh, the, the alternative is at this stage. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, we're saying we have a lot of work to do uh, in this country and around the world to get to do what we need to do in the short time we have to solve uh, the climate crisis. In fact, the international community, just to be more specific, has said, look, we only have till 2030. That's 11 years to roughly cut our emissions in half in Canada and everywhere else around the globe. So that's that's a huge task. It's a monumental task. And if we're going to actually do it, we need policies that aren't going to cost people a lot of money and that are actually going to be pro-growth and that are going to spur innovation um, so that people can um, can support it because we, we've got a lot of work to do together. I, I, I know you don't want to get political, but I am going to here for just a second because uh, one of the conundrums that I'm, I'm facing here is, is we do the descriptions and, and bring people like you on uh, to do some analysis of this sort of thing, is, is it seems to be right now the mantra for the Conservative Party is carbon taxing is bad. It, it's just there. But it was, as you know, historically, Michael, it was actually developed as, as a conservative policy a number of years ago because it is market-based, and, and that seemed to be the foundation that they wanted to build on. And now all of a sudden they've turned their back on it. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. Look, there's two, there's broadly speaking two ways we can address climate change. Right. One is having the government intervene in the economy and put in place regulations and subsidies and other kinds of command and control kinds of policies. The second way is putting a price on carbon through a carbon tax and letting individuals and businesses and families decide how to respond and let them figure out um, how they're going to reduce their emissions. And that's why really this 
should be a conservative policy because it involves the least amount of government intervention, and it allows it gives people the freedom to choose their own response to the policy. So, uh, and look, this isn't just theory. Like we, we know these this policy works. It was It's been in place for over a decade in British Columbia. It's helped reduce emissions by roughly 10%, 10% there, even at a low price. Uh, it's been implemented in many, many places around the world. It's now going in place in China. Uh, a quarter of the U.S. economy has a carbon price. So we know this works. We know this can help us address our climate crisis. And actually, uh, three of the four major political parties in Canada support this. Uh, it's unfortunately just the conservatives right now uh, who are, as you say, attacking this policy. And it's really unfortunate because when we, this is a very serious problem. And when we look at their plan, we see that it does take us backwards on climate change and cost Canadians more money. Let's uh, let's get into some of the numbers here, uh, and I know when we start talking about t- carbon pricing and, and this sort of thing, and and uh, some of the the, the wordsmithing that goes on here, I guess it just makes people's eyes glaze over. But it's, it, you've put it down in pretty simplistic terms here. When it comes down to money, uh, it seems as if uh, the conservative plan here is actually going to carry a higher price tag and maybe not be as effective. Explain exactly how you got to that conclusion, Michael. Yeah, there's really two reasons for that. So the first reason is that the conservatives remove the best tool we have in the toolkit to address climate change. That's the carbon tax and rebate program that we've been talking about. Uh, The part that we haven't focused on is the rebate component of that, because all the money from this carbon tax goes back to families and businesses. A family of four in Ontario, for example, this year already received $307 back in carbon rebates. And over the next four years, they're going to get just under $2,500 back. So the conservative plan, by canceling that policy, is also canceling all those checks that would have gone out. So that's the first reason that this policy is going to cost Canadians. And then the second reason is that they're adding, instead of a carbon tax, a series of government regulations that are going to cost billions of dollars. Uh, one of them, just as a quick example, is a subsidy program to help give Canadians money up to $5,000 if they renovate their home and put in more efficient furnaces or better windows. Um, and unfortunately, the problem with those kinds of programs is they end up spending a lot of money to pay people who are already going to do these kinds of renovations. Um, there was a program in uh, the Stephen Harper era that looked very similar, and an analysis that w- was done found that 70% of the money actually funded people who were already going to make changes anyway. So that's, those are the two reasons this plan costs more money. It removes the carbon rebates, and then it adds much more expensive government regulations. If you could delve into a little bit about one of the points that uh, that uh, Mr. Shear made uh, quite clear that he thought was going to be one of the linchpins of this whole thing, is he wanted to incentivize industry to, to be the leader in this. In other words, they're the ones that are going to make the innovations, they're the ones that are going to start to reduce emissions, and, and we're all going to benefit from that. Yeah, no, look, and technology and innovation are good things. Uh, sure. We should be encouraging technology and innovation. Um, there's a, the best way to do that, though, frankly, is to put a carbon price in place to say, look, businesses, we're going to make it more expensive for you to uh, pollute, uh, to have carbon pollution. And we're going to let you figure out how you're going to avoid that cost. Um, any economist you talk to would tell you that's the best way to go about this. The conservatives are using a different approach. They are uh, putting in place a technology and innovation fund um, in which they're going to provide businesses a uh, um, uh, number of subsidies. And we've tried this program before, too. We have a series of programs through an organization called Sustainable Development and Technology Canada. This is a uh, quasi-government agency. It's been around since 2001. And so we know how these subsidy programs work, and they do reduce some emissions, um, but they're much more expensive than just putting a price on carbon. In fact, they're about nine times as expensive. So um, technology programs can be part of the answer. Uh, The best way to do it is through a carbon price, but it's not, it can't be relied on by itself. We don't have we don't, uh, we, and we just don't have the time to wait for new technologies. We've got to act. We've got a solution that works. And so really our recommendation is that's the best way to go about things. Michael, the, the whole idea of incentivizing industry, it sounds like a wonderful thing uh, from a conceptual standpoint. But is, that, is there really a motivation to do that? I, mean, I, I guess I, I just in general terms, I think what Mr. Shear is trying to explain here is that uh, the big polluters, are instead of being fined, they're going to be told, that, okay, that money that was going to be your fine, you're going to have to put back into to incentivizing it for, for new policies, for greener policies and, and uh, innovation that way. And, and so, you know, they're kind of reinvesting, I guess, into their own industry to do that sort of thing. But does it really happen? 
Yeah, it, it can. It can. So I think the technology front is an, is an okay part of the plan. It's just not sufficient. Um, it does. It will get us a small part of what we need, call it 10 to 20% roughly to give people an idea. Um, but it doesn't do enough by itself. Um, we need a broader price on carbon, um, and we can't rely when we're facing such a great threat. I mean, climate change is the greatest threat we've ever faced to humanity, to our way of life, we can't just rely on the idea that we may, in the future, invent some new technology that will help us. We can certainly try to do that, but it's not a, it's not a strategy by itself. Um, really, what we need to do is be putting in place the kinds of solutions we already know work, uh, and that that chief among them, in my view, is a, is a carbon tax. And of course, that's going to send money back to families in the form of rebates. And so, rather than paying money to industries, uh, we'd much rather see that money go back to families and uh, see the kinds of reductions you get from a carbon tax uh, in the process. Are, are, are industries not doing this already? I'm, I'm not the incentivizer, but I mean the idea about looking for new technologies and, and, and more effective technologies. And, and I guess the example I jumped to mind right. here is, is the auto industry. Uh, you know, we yeah. say, you know, the old idea that, hey, you uh, you have an SUV, well, that's a gas guzzler. Well, actually, not so much anymore if you've bought a new model right. uh, because of the technologies that have, have occurred over the last little while. The carbon footprint is is much less than it was some years ago. And uh, uh, that's not really an incentive program. That's the industry itself that says, look, at, we can do better. And uh, I, I can remember a couple of years ago when Arnold Schwarzenegger was still the governor of California. He, uh, he was over here in Ontario, if you may recall. And essentially, he said that instead of penalizing the auto industry, he says, tell them, get better yourself, or we're going to do this. And it's amazing the sorts of innovations that they can come up with. Absolutely. No, the businesses, you're absolutely right. Businesses have done a remarkable job, speaking broadly, at coming up with ways to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, that's going to say it saves them money, and it's good business, because consumers today, you reference it off the top, are more concerned increasingly concerned about the environment and about climate change. So yes, businesses are doing a lot of this themselves, and, and that's another reason why subsidizing them, paying them for these kind of technological innovations isn't, in our view, a, a key priority. It isn't really, the, it shouldn't come to the forefront when you're thinking about how we reduce uh, climate change, how we reduce carbon pollution. Um, really what you can do is put a price on carbon, so make it even more expensive for these businesses to pollute. And that's just going to give them a greater incentive to reduce it. Every business wants to avoid costs. So let's put the price in place. Let's let businesses come up with their own solutions. We don't have to pay them for it. Um, but uh, we know we're going to get reductions in emissions by doing that. And, and and I guess in the in the long term, everybody benefits from a situation like this because, uh, from what I'm told, for the, the carbon taxing plan, and we've seen an example of this, of course, in British Columbia, uh, everybody's participating. Uh, industry, of course, is doing what they can, but so are I, so are you, uh, on an individual basis. And and as you say, there's a financial incentive for you and I to do that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, we we all respond to price signals. If I go into the grocery store and apples, uh, a bag of apples are five dollars more expensive today. I may reconsider my choice. I like apples, but um, and maybe I would still buy them, but maybe the person behind me would say, you know what, oranges are just as good a choice. I'm going to go to oranges and save some money. And that's, that's really, at heart, the principle behind this carbon tax, to say let's make it more expensive to buy things that pollute more in terms of carbon pollution, and let's let people choose. We're going to send them a rebate so they can still afford the more expensive products if they feel they really need them. But other people might say, you know what, I'm going to keep the money that I just got sent. I'm going to avoid the higher cost product. And in the process, not only am I going to get rewarded because I'm going to have more money, but I'm going to pollute less. And that's, that's really the principle behind uh, this policy. As you say, it's worked in British Columbia. It's worked in a lot of places around the world. And the time is now. We have to act. So we'd really like to see the federal government, whoever the next federal government is, conservative, liberal, NDP, green, uh, to use the best tool we have in the toolkit, a proven solution here, uh, to help us solve this, this urgent challenge of climate change. I want you to address one thing, because uh, obviously, to nobody's shock, I guess, uh, the conservatives are, are poo-hooing your, plan, your uh, report here and suggesting that uh, that it's not factually accurate, et cetera, et cetera. Brock Harrison, who's uh, uh, Shear's uh, director of communications, uh, says that you did not uh, effectively talk about his program and, and the pros and cons of that, about the incentivization program. But uh, from the, the notes I've seen from your report, yeah, you did. Yeah, I'm really puzzled by Brock's comment, um, and frankly, I'd, I'd love the chance to talk to him about it because he says we didn't consider the technology, but he doesn't put out any facts. 
He doesn't refute any of our numbers. He doesn't put out any alternative facts. Uh, and the plan itself is a very general plan. Um, but, you know, his specific point seems to be some sort of issue with the technology fund. And we, you and I just talked about this a few minutes ago. Uh, we absolutely did analyze their technology and innovation fund. It will reduce some emissions, about 1% of the emissions we need to reduce. Um, and, and look, it, it was a very easy thing to analyze because there already are programs through the federal government right now that incentivize technology. We have actually an 18-year track record through conservative and liberal governments of doing these kinds of programs, and we know how they work. So we took those numbers. Um, if I, I would much rather have, uh, I, I would love to see if he has some alternative numbers, what they are, because in my view, um, you know, this issue is too serious to play politics with. Um, this isn't for us about supporting or opposing the conservatives or any other party. It's about we need to act on climate change. We're facing a great threat, all of us, and um, and we have solutions that work. Um, you know, a carbon price is a key part of the solution, and we just like to see that implemented. But from the, the public standpoint, though, Michael, it's you know, as you say, uh, the clock is ticking. We've got October. Uh, you know, who we elect as the next government for this country, whether it's going to be the Liberals or the Conservatives, that's probably a two-horse race here. Uh, is going to have a big, big impact on the kind of approach we're going to take towards climate in the past. So uh, we need to be educated about this. And when the problem we're getting here is a lot of misinformation from some sides and, and half-truths about some of these things. I'm sure you've seen the uh, the TV commercials and the radio ads that, uh, that uh, some of the other sides are running, and that's the political end of things. And they're talking about how much it's going to cost us uh, with the federal government's plan, the liberal plan here. But they don't include the rebates when they start crunching those numbers and that you know, so if somebody just sees that uh, in a vacuum they're going to say wow boy that's ridiculous so they're going to pay that much more but you're going to get money back and uh, you, you need an apples to apples comparison here you absolutely do and look this has been studied by a lot of people the independent uh, parliamentary budget office for example put out a report a few weeks ago and said eight in ten ontarians are going to be better off under this program they're going to receive more in rebates then they will pay in carbon taxes. And the two in 10 on average that will pay more are those who make over $100,000 a year, and their, their bill was only going to be about $50 a year. So this program makes sense. It's affordable. Uh, we have to do something on climate change. And it's really a shame that, that some people are putting out half-truths on this. This is not an issue that we can play politics with. This is, the, this is all of our futures. And we have we have policies that will work. We ought to use them, and the carbon tax and rebate is a key part of that. Is uh, the report available on your webpage? Yeah, absolutely. People can go to cleanprosperity.ca and take a look, and uh, I would encourage and uh, welcome any feedback on it. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good to be here. Thank you. Michael Bernstein uh, with uh, Canadians for Clean Prosperity. Google that, name, and uh, you can read the report for yourself and uh, draw your own conclusions. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.